invite you to Jonah chapter 4. You make your way there in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. British playwright George Bernard Shaw once quipped, Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. On the one hand, this was a reprehensible statement if you consider his setting. Many Christians in Great Britain in the history of this region have not only tried Christianity, they've died for Christ. But on the other hand, we understand what Shaw means, and there's some truth in what he says. Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. Living the life to which Jesus has called us is a lot harder than merely appreciating the life that Jesus has given to us. And one of the greatest challenges in all of Scripture, one of the greatest challenges of authentic Christianity is to honor Jesus' command to love our enemies. Matthew 5 and verse 44. Jesus commands us to love our enemies because He does. Jesus demonstrated the quality of His love. This is the demonstration of the kind of love that God has. He demonstrated it by dying for sinners while we were His enemies. Romans 5, 8, and 10. So it is fundamentally Christ-like to love our enemies. Yet this is no easy proposition, is it? It grates against our natural bent to want the best for someone we do not really like. Someone who frustrates us or abuses us. Someone who intimidates us or in some way conflicts with my life agenda. To want mercy for that person is not easy. But as a Christian, I serve a God who loves my enemies and rejoices to treat those enemies with mercy. If you're with me, that reality does not naturally bring joy to my heart. It just doesn't strike me that way. God wants to treat my enemies with mercy. I want God to treat me with mercy. I rejoice that He does not treat me the way that my sins deserve. I rejoice when God intervenes in my life and showers down His mercies upon me. But I don't like the idea of God displaying mercy towards someone I don't like. God's zealous agenda... To treat sinners with mercy is a wonderful concept in fuzzy, generalized terms. But when God treats someone that I despise or dislike, someone that I count as an enemy, when God prospers my enemy in a way that he or she does not deserve, that's hard to appreciate. And if you're still senseless and dull here this morning, bring the people before your eyes. The people you don't like, you know who they are. Bring before your eyes the people that would count you their enemies and you understand why. And ask yourself as their faces emerge, do I rejoice? Do I desire God's mercy 
to visit these people? Well, the truth is, God does. Our God rejoices to extend mercy to His enemies. He longs to draw sinners to repentance and thus not to treat them as their sins deserve. And He is ever laboring in that vein. This is our God, a God of steadfast, loyal love, who is ever faithful. As we come to this final chapter, the book of Jonah, we find in Jonah this intense desire for God to treat him with mercy in the circumstances of life, while possessing utterly no interest in God treating his enemies with mercy. It's a sad commentary, but it's a very honest one. It is a strange way to end this book, but one that ably presses each of us to face the heart of Jonah that beats within our own chest. We want Jonah to end, we want this book to end, I ran away from God, I came back to God, I proclaimed His truth, and God be praised, all of these sinners repented. What a joy it is to be used of God and to see His saving grace. End of story. But this book ends on this horrible note of this grumping, complaining, bitter, loveless prophet. But again, it's not written so that we think great things of Jonah. It's written so that we deal with the spirit of Jonah that resides within us. And so in utter honesty, Jonah makes clear that he does not like God's merciful treatment of the Ninevites. And how we apply that, we need to be careful with And we'll work our way through that as we go through the text today. But it has a lot to say to us. Remembering the situation, Jonah brings the message of repentance to Nineveh. You are sinful. He enjoyed that part of the message. But then he said, you must turn. God's judgment is going to come upon you because of your sin. There's a great response. These unbelievers in this great awakening of faith turn from their sin and embrace the forgiveness and mercy of God, which is extended to them, chapter 3 and verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. There's repentance, turning from their godlessness. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah doesn't like this, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. There's honesty. We've got to deal with it. But the Hebrew text here labors to say about as strongly as language can put it that Jonah was exceedingly unhappy. He was unhappy with God's merciful treatment of these violent, arrogant Ninevites. In Jonah's eyes, this development was a great evil. They had all the evil that they were doing, but this was evil as well, to forgive these people, to not judge these people. He despised what God had done. It enraged him. There's a play of words in the Hebrew text as well that may miss us, but God relenting from visiting the evil Ninevites with evil, Jonah sees the whole thing as evil. Rather than rejoice that he was used of God to spark this great awakening, Jonah sulks. Rather than run away, as he did in chapter 1, we at least give him this, he prays instead of running. Verse 2, 
He prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I ran away from your call originally because I knew what it might mean. And you know, as we consider this, there are certainly certain people in our lives we really don't care to see them get right with God. We find confirmation in the fact that they remain mired in their sin. If this person stays in sin and does not repent and God's judgment continues to come, God's discipline on the part of a believer, if they stay in that mode, then it kind of confirms me. And I kind of like it that way. We may not be as intense as Jonah was here. Tell God he's done a wrong thing, that we think he's done an evil thing, that he shouldn't have done it this way. We may not be as intense to hate a certain kind of people. But like Jonah, we have no desire for God to visit our enemies with mercy. There are some people, it suits us just fine if they stay right where they are. Indeed, Jonah had run away from God's call to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites, but also because he despised God's mercy. And here's the honesty of the text. It's amazing this is even in print. But here it is. He says, I knew this about you, God, verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that's who you were. The God of Scripture is revealed to us this way. Exodus 34, remember God intones to Moses the self-revelatory announcement. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Jonah knew this is who God was. For centuries, the Israelites had worshipped this God of steadfast, loyal, faithful, forgiving love. This is who God is. Jonah knows it. He has himself benefited greatly from this God, this God of mercy. But Jonah has no interest seeing that mercy extended to his enemies. He really doesn't want to share it. God had relented from the disaster that he had planned for Nineveh, and Jonah despised this development. And prays, again honestly, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is heartfelt. In Jonah's estimation, God's plan was evil. The only good that could come out of it would be if he died. And the Lord said, verse 4, do you do well to be angry? You say it's good for you to die, Jonah. What you should be asking yourself is whether or not it is good for you to be angry. God rebukes his prophet, and that rebuke is delivered in fuller measure in the following account that will come, verses 5 and following. Now, in this narrative that follows, God's mercy is removed from Jonah in a very tangible, obvious way. Some commentators would even argue that the events of verses 1 through 4 actually follow verses 5 through 11. That at verse 5, we're going back in time to something that had happened to Jonah earlier. Why would Jonah watch over the city to see what God would do if the outcome had already been determined, verses 1 through 4? And they may have a point there. 
If this event took place then after verses 1 through 4, perhaps Jonah continues to hold out hope that the wickedness of the Ninevites will eventually catch up to them. Ultimately, the text doesn't make this particularly clear, but the object lesson here for Jonah is very clear. Jonah has objected to the mercy of God extended to Nineveh. Jonah now objects to removal of God's mercy upon him, and through this, God shows him his own heart. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. He's gone into the west of the city. That's where he would have entered, coming from the Palestinian coast. He then passes through the city to the east side, and there on the outside, the outskirts of the city, he makes a booth for himself. Same Hebrew word for the festival of booths or tabernacles, a rugged kind of shelter that he makes with whatever's available in this part of the world, basically just stones. Probably doesn't have too many branches to put over the top, but he makes this little crude shelter and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. If you're real awake here, you hear that word appointed and you say, I've heard this before. God has appointed a fish. He appoints a fish to come and to swallow Jonah when he's running from God. And here now God is appointing again, and he's going to continue to do so. He appoints here not a fish, but a plant. A plant that will grow up over Jonah's head. We don't know ultimately if this is miraculous or if this plant just is, is a normal plant, that, but it happens to be right where Jonah is, and it grows up and gives him some protection. In this part of the world, in the hottest part of the season, it is very common to see maximum temperatures reach 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And we probably need to put Jonah in something of that setting. This is one hot spot of earth. He's got this little shelter. Now this plant with broad leaves apparently grows up over him and he can find shade under it. God's mercy is being poured out on Jonah here. This God of mercy and steadfast love acts to alleviate Jonah's discomfort. How does Jonah respond? As you might expect. The middle of verse 6, So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now we assume that that's because it's shading him. But there might be some indication here that he's very much pleased with the plant itself. That he appreciates it. And you're sitting on the outskirts of Nineveh. It's not the fanciest place on the planet. It's not a place where a lot of people go to vacation, if you know what I mean. And here's this beautiful plant, and as an Israelite, he comes to appreciate and would have from youth that these plants are the creative power of God. They're uniquely displaying the glories of the Creator, and he takes great joy in this plant that's over his head. In our days, somebody's installed an in-ground swimming pool in his backyard, and he's got his iced tea there, and he's just kind of enjoying this little setting. Pretty nice. This special act of God's mercy. But verse 7, God keeps appointing things. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. In the Hebrew tradition, this is the castor oil plant, we're not sure, but it does have broad leaves and it is particularly susceptible to death by worms if it is attacked at the roots or at the stem. And that is perhaps what happens here. At any rate, this plant dies. All the water's drained out of his pool, and the iced tea's gone, and the whole situation changes dramatically in this intense heat. 
God is doing what here? He's using these common features of nature to teach his wayward and selfish prophets something about his purposes. And God continues to appoint in verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. This scorching east wind doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but if somebody said to Midwesterners here there was a blizzard, that conjures up certain images and certain ideas if we've been through one of those. Well, for these people in the east, a strong east wind, a scorching east wind, can only mean a Sirocco. One author defines Sirocco winds this way. During the period of a Sirocco, the temperature rises about 16 to 22 degrees Fahrenheit above the average At times, every scrap of moisture seems to have been extracted from the air, so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are peculiarly trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest people irritable and fretful and to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. Sirocco, writes another author, brings constant hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters, causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and occasionally bizarre behavior. Stewart claims, one author, that some Muslim countries are known to commonly reduce the penalty of crimes committed during a Sirocco. They figure everybody's nuts. Jonah may be suffering sunstroke. We see two things here. He's faint from the sun. It doesn't say that he's been exercising or anything. He's just out in this beating sun and he's faint. He's probably dehydrated. And another evidence of this is depression, which he... Jonah doesn't seem to need to come up with ideas to want to die, does he? He's had quite a number of them along the way without uh, hot weather. But... It is very possible that he's facing sunstroke in the Sirocco wind and not properly covered from the elements. Everything is going against Jonah, and he is so miserable, he wants to check out. I'm done. Let me die. Now think of what God is doing here. This is the natural realm. This is a fallen world that is corrupted and and broken because of sin, and that world is now affecting Jonah very pointedly. Verse 9, but God says to him, in this response to wanting to die, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. It's only the mercy of God that kept him standing at this point. He seems to almost be challenging God, wanting to be cursed. Wanting to curse God and to be judged for it on the spot. But Jonah here demonstrates an immense pity for this plant. He had pity for the plant because he had an immense pity for himself. He wanted the comfort of God's merciful provision, and when that mercy was removed, Jonah objected. Was God making Jonah's life miserable for no reason? No. There was a lesson for Jonah to learn in this suffering. God hadn't told Jonah that he had to go out on that outside the east side of Nineveh and sit out there in the hot sun, but he is. And God in his mercy has provided this plant, but God in his mercy has also killed the plant and said, Jonah, 
I want to talk to you. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. 120,000 persons not knowing right from left might be infants, in which case the number of Nineveh's population would have been much more extensive. Most commentators take this to just be 120,000 people that to say it in our terms just don't know what on earth is going on. They don't understand God. They don't understand how to relate to God. They don't understand their sin. They're just 120,000 people. They're just normal people. But they're people. And seeing life from a Jewish perspective, understanding that God is the creator, that he made man in his own image, there is an order of reflecting the glory of God. And plants are lower in that. They do reflect the glory of God. The wonder of plant life. We talked about that on a Wednesday night here recently, just naming all of the flowers and all of the plants that show the glory of God and all the favorites that people had in the assembly that night. It's amazing as you think about all that God has created. But plants do not reflect the glory of God as much as animals do. And there should be a special treatment of animals over plants, indeed, and of people over animals because we are made in the image of God. Do you see it? Jonah, he says, Jonah wants God to strike down a city and to spare a plant. Jonah, you have pity for a plant. Should I not have pity on 120,000 people and their cattle? Jonah, you are a man of pity. You have desires for mercy. Mercies that improve your life. Mercies that improve the lives of the people you've chosen to love. You're a man who loves mercy, but mercy for certain people. But I have called Israel to be a conduit of blessing to all nations, to be a conduit of my mercy to all peoples. Genesis 12. You love yourself. You do not love your enemies. You want me to have mercy on you but you begrudge my mercy on other undeserving sinners. We can only hope, as we think on what Jonah is learning here, that he got the point and that that is why he has written so transparently about his own sin. We don't even know if Jonah wrote this book, but if Jonah did, as tradition says, he's not doing so to say, look at how great Jonah is. He's doing so to say, look at what I've learned about the merciful God. Here I was loving a plant and being quite passionate about it. Indeed willing to die when that plant was taken away. And here is a large city of people. And I didn't care if they died. But it does not ultimately matter what Jonah learned Indeed, the text of Scripture doesn't give one note on the point because what matters is that we deal with the Jonah spirit that is in our hearts. Every one of us. Like Jonah, I easily accept God's patient, slow to anger, steadfastly loyal mercy when it is extended to me. 
I mean, is it not true, believer? Isn't that one of the sweetest things that we possess in this world is a knowledge of the mercy and the grace of our God to us? We rejoice in that. We celebrate that. We sing about it on the Lord's Day. And we are so grateful to God for His mercies to us, which we know we don't deserve. But I do not as easily rejoice that God extends that same mercy to people that I don't like. How do we apply this text? There's a way to do this. And in the hands of the preacher, there's some dangers here. Let me give you an illustration of how I think we could apply this text faithfully, but really miss the whole point of our own heart. I grew up in a pretty cosmopolitan place, right near Philadelphia. And you have a very different view of the world there. And you interact with a lot of different cultures and different people. And there's certain things that are just kind of taken for granted. And I grew up in a house of a father who was a gracious man and loved all people and have never seen a hint of prejudice in his bones or my mother's for that matter. Never saw it, never sensed it, never experienced it. But on a trip into the deep south, we stopped at a place, and I won't explain all the circumstances, but we're standing on the church grounds of a Bible-preaching church. And I'll never forget the day. There I am, 16, 17 years of age, and this pastor explains to us, we do not permit Negroes in this church. That's what he said. And I'll never forget the words that he said. There's a doctor in town who's a Negro doctor. We would tolerate his presence in our church. Not only in experience, but also in the work that God was doing in my life, that man was seen in my eyes as wicked. And he was. He might have preached the Bible every Sunday, but that man hated certain people and knew nothing of the mercy of God in its universal extent to all people. Now you get me going on that, I can get pretty riled. And we could get pretty riled as a church. That's not the way that we see things. And by God's grace, much of this country is long past that orientation in some ways. Not all, certainly. But that's not normal conversation these days. And I'm thankful for that. But you know, we could talk about our love for people of all nations and all places. And we could get really riled up about those sinful people who don't like a certain stripe of people. And we could all go out of here saying amen and jumping up and down and saying that's right, this is the way that it should be. God loves all people and we should love all people and we do. And we don't like the people who don't like all the people. We could apply it that way. But before we grow smug, let's admit that with Jonah that we all have certain individuals in our lives whose continued separation from the mercy of God suits us just fine. Maybe it's not a certain type of people that are different than we are, a certain nation, nationality, or background, but it very well can be certain individuals who cross paths in our life, and we are quite happy if they're removed from the mercy of God. 
In theory, we rejoice that God loves all people. We know that it's right for God to have mercy on sinners, and it is right for us to have mercy. But this book of Jonah is not about God being right. Jonah never really argues that point. He does say, well, God, what you've done is evil in my sight. But it's not ultimately about God being right. It's about Jonah liking God being right. Jonah appreciating that this is the nature of God. This is who he is. And I rejoice and I celebrate this God. And I want to be like him. It's about our rejoicing in the God who loves mercy. Mercy toward sinners And yes, mercy toward enemies. Jonah wanted nothing to do with God's mercy program unless it made Jonah happy. And that's where it gets a lot closer to home with us. We love the mercies of God that make our lives convenient. That bring us pleasures. That bring us the fellowship of God's people that we like and enjoy their presence. we, We are happy with God's mercy in these things. Jonah rejoiced in his own deliverance, but he didn't want that deliverance for everyone else. And so for us, it may not be hatred toward a particular nationality. We're not particularly against Ninevites, and certainly not against other nationalities within our own country or throughout the world, but it is a disregard for God's grace. It is a lack of mercy when we do not appreciate God's merciful intentions working toward everyone. And we display this Jonah spirit when we get so occupied with the circumstances of our lives. We want to make sure all the plants are up hiding the sun. That there's shade for our families. That there's shade for us in this world of God's grace. That His mercy keeps being extended to us. And we work very hard to make sure that all the pieces of life are working out and everything's going well in our lives. And we pause before a meal as we gather in church and privately in our devotion to say, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for extending to us your mercy and your goodness in so many ways in our lives. God is so good. God is so good to me. But how dead we become to the mercy, merciful purposes of God working in the lives of all people. Extending that mercy, pursuing sinners. Did you hear it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 that we read earlier today? We are through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to no longer live for ourselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are to live for the love of others. No longer to live for ourselves, but to live with the mind of Christ who laid down His life for His enemies. Who says to us, love your enemies. Why? Because He does. On a broader scale, our occupation should not be with the mere circumstances of life and God's mercies extended to us, but with the work that God is doing to win the loss to Him throughout the entire world. 
What hypocrisy it is for believers to receive the mercy of God in forgiveness and to receive the mercy of God in daily provision and to have no interest in the people of this world who are lost and headed to a Christless eternity. What hypocrisy. We have been given so much. We should love mercy. We should love evangelism. We should love our enemies. And we must learn to rejoice then in the mercy of God, not merely to put up with it, but to want it. To want it for our enemies. Jonah had grown insensitive to the grand redemptive scheme of God. He was finding no joy in living for that redemptive scheme. Think of it in terms of the providences of this last chapter. Jonah saw very clearly the angst in creation. He saw that he lived in a fallen world, in the wind, in the plant, in the worm. There were evidences that he lived in a cursed world, and he didn't like that. And he wanted God to extend mercy to him in this world that has fallen and corrupted. But he was so insensitive to God's redemptive love that he saw these things only as irritations in his life. These physical things that weren't right, this hot sun and wind and all this, these were just irritations to him and he wished that God would fix them. He was completely insensitive to the work that God is doing to renew this earth, to the coming millennial kingdom of Christ where the desert will blossom like a rose. He was utterly insensitive beyond that to the very center of God's purposes because he cared about a plant, but he lost touch with the redemptive purposes of God. At the very same time, he had no care for the Ninevites. He saw the Ninevites the same way that he saw a plant. Yet, he saw the Ninevites as even less important. They simply irritated him. He hated them. But God has a grand redemptive plan for all of creation. This does not mean that all will respond to that. It does not mean that God is figuring things out as he goes by any means when it comes to redemptive purposes. But it means that God is moving in this world with a message of salvation and grace and mercy And that if we are faithful to God and we are on the page with Him on His agenda, we too are going to love mercy. Mercy toward our enemies. Jesus loved sinners and died to unite Gentiles and Jews in one body, making peace. You talk about the ultimate wall of separation, that's it. Jews on one side, Gentiles on another, and let's hate each other. That's right where Jonah is. We may not have that precise situation, but let's remember that we have come to saving faith in a Savior who breaks down walls of division and separation. It is the purpose of Jesus Christ to bring all nations together under His Lordship. You see, when we set people off, we don't like certain people. We have prejudices against certain nations. It's because we don't understand Jesus. We think we're Lord. We think we run the situation, and we don't realize that he's come to save people from all nations. That's the Savior that we've come to embrace, the Savior who is making peace. That then needs to be our agenda as well. Maybe you are separated from this mercy of God. 
He is a God of mercy. The issue is not what sins you have committed against Him. The issue is not will He judge, for He will. But the issue is have you come to embrace His forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Have you come to realize that your sins were on His back? That the penalty has been paid? And that salvation has been offered? That God in His grace will open eyes to this truth. If there is repentance, there will be forgiveness and there will be acceptance. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, do we live with a cross-focused life orientation? Do we run into this world every day seeing, I am forgiven, I have been washed clean of my sin by the grace of God? And do we go about God's business, conduits of His mercy, conduits of His steadfast, loyal love, even toward our enemies? And that's where it is so often seen. We were saved so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Because for our sake He made Him to be sin who know no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's natural to hate your enemies. It's normal among people who follow Christ to at least ignore our enemies and try not to do nasty things and hurt them. But it is nothing short of the mercy and grace of the indwelling Spirit of God who transforms our lives to lead us to love our enemies. If Jesus had not done so, we would be destined for eternity in hell. But He did so. May we come back to the foot of the cross every day. Know that Christ has washed us clean of our sin and then give ourselves to be a conduit of His mercy to all peoples. He is doing that. That is His agenda, to reach out to all kinds of sinners, to pour out His grace upon them, to mercifully go after those who are against Him, to seek their repentance and their forgiveness. And we should be doing the same thing. Not ignoring sin, not saying that everybody's okay just like they are. Realizing that there is sin, realizing that people are separated from Christ, but being instruments of His mercy and peace in the lives of everyone, including our enemies. Christianity would be a wonderful thing if anyone tried it. Let's do more than try it. Let's live the life of Jesus Christ and love our enemies. That's not my idea That's not your idea. There isn't any humanly devised religious system or philosophy that jumps up and down about loving enemies. But this is the one we follow. Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who loved His enemies. And may He use us to pass that love onto ours. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, this is far past us. We need your help. We need your strength. I pray that you would permit us to proclaim the gospel of Christ freely and faithfully to the unbelieving world. I pray, God, that we would also love those that we don't like and learn to proclaim this message of forgiveness and reconciliation to unbelievers 
everywhere, and even to believers, where we have struggle and trial. May we learn to be conduits of the mercy of God. I pray for anyone that is separated from Christ here today. There is nothing that they can do to save themselves. But I pray that you would put a desire in their heart to turn to you, that you would open their eyes to see you, and that you would, by your mercy, bring them to saving faith in Jesus today, to see that one has died for the reconciliation of the lost. We pray to this end, asking that you will change our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen.